the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. In this week's episode, we cover quite a variety of topics. The main focus is around thinking through when do you switch from beta users to paying customers. And with my marketing and sales role in the business, I'm putting some pressure on Matt to try and accelerate the timeline on that so you can hear his response. We also talk about how long should you spend on creating a logo in the early stages of a business. Then Matt turns the tables on me and asks me some questions about some of the projects I'm working on at Beanages and specifically my focus for the first and second quarter of 2021, which is around building capacity in the team. So how can we handle more work and how can we increase revenue and the number of clients we have without the team needing to work more hours? And that leads into some conversations around delegating tasks and areas of responsibility and building a management team. So we'll we'll get started. Hey Matt, good to be chatting with you again. And we actually got to meet in person last week again for, for the second time. So for the second time, yeah, which which is doing well you know, in these times, I think. Yeah, I mean it's lucky. It just turned out that we happen to live in neighbouring cities, and in this global world, I think that was very much by chance. But but lucky. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, it doesn't. It feels like. Uh, I mean, you're right, we're about, what, an hour, hour and a half away, um, but it does feel like there are different cities and there's not too much crossover, uh, you know, particularly with the, the sort of uh, jobs we've got. But it's, yeah, we're lucky that we can sort of um, catch up and meet in person like that and um, sort of have those conversations that just come up when you're face-to-face. I We've talked quite a bit on the Being Ninjas podcast about culture and building relationships and running remote teams. And what, something that that I find helpful is, or a framework is talking about the difference between maintaining relationships and building relationships. And I think it's hard to build a relationship online. It can be done. But once you've met someone yeah. in person, then you, I, I find I've got a much better sense of who they are having sat down for yes. a coffee or for a meal. And then everything has more context when you're talking in line, uh, talking online. Yeah, I I, th- I think that's a yeah definitely. I think there's uh, there's there's still something about being face to face, even even with things like Zoom and um, online conferences and things like that. It's still I don't, I don't think anyone's sort of really recreated the magic that you get from being being there physically. And I noticed when we were chatting, we had dinner to the two of us together with Tracy, our business partner, and th- that's when ideas get sparked when you're chatting and, yep. and then throwing around ideas. And I find it hard to recreate that on a Zoom call. I find myself on a Zoom call more wanting to stick to a set agenda and, and work through things in an efficient manner, which doesn't leave room for the magic that can happen if you're spitballing ideas or bouncing ideas off each other. Yeah, I think it's um, – I, I think you got a good point about um, – you know, building versus maintaining. There's, I, I've had people that I've worked with before where we have been able to work well remotely, but I think it takes a very specific personality. 
the, the sort of personality where we can be on a call together and we're comfortable with having five minutes of silence <laughs> while we're on the call because we're both just thinking and then we just start up a conversation about something again. But that's a super awkward thing to try and create with someone if you don't know them very well. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's jump into it. What have you been working on since we last chatted and is there any, have you faced any challenges, anything that you've been learning? So um, we're sort of pushing ahead getting uh, beta testers onboarded at the moment, and that's actually gone pretty well. I think it's, you know, it's sort of really showing the advantage of, um, for me, partnering with uh, people like domain experts that are in the industry with clients like yourself and Tracy, because you've been able to draw on your respective uh, networks and refer some people and also promote uh, the the, op- the opportunity to come and beta test this software. And people have seen you know, the credibility that comes with someone like Tracy posting and saying this is available for testing. So that's been great. We've got, uh, I think at last count, four uh, users now that have installed Crossbeam and connected their store and we've started importing data for them. And that's been, I mean, it's there's nothing like putting it in front of a person to see all the assumptions that you made and which ones are right and which ones are wrong. And uh, it's that's been super helpful. There's been a bunch of things that have come out of that that I've been busy fixing. But there hasn't been too many sort of showstoppers, which is good. There's nothing yet that's been like, no, this isn't going to work at all. It's just been, well, this needs to, you know, this setting needs to support more options and things like that. Um, so that's been really good. The I've been reworking the way we've imp- we're importing uh, payments, and I got that uh, deployed this morning. So that's now running smoothly. We're getting better, sort of faster and more reliable way to import payments. And so from here, it's, there's I've sort of I'm now feeling uh, a little bit a um, little bit of pressure now because there's a, quite a few things on the go. We've got I think there's sort of three different sort of um, fronts that I've got to work on now. There's start. There's I've got to get some um, marketing assets together because we need to list Crossbeam in the Neato Partner Directory, and so we've got to get a landing page. And I've already got things like a terms and conditions document, a privacy policy. It's all this sort of stuff that you need to get done that doesn't really improve the product, <laughs> but you need it there before you can launch it. Uh, so that that's that's slowly progressing. Um, there's also some uh, other things we need to do, like we need to build support for subscriptions so we can charge people mm. and we need to build a better onboarding workflow. And then finally, there's are still other, um, I guess, features or just enhancements that I need to make. So different settings that we need to support, um, different automations that we yeah. need to add that have come out of the beta feedback. And it's at the moment, it's just a tough job of trying to prioritize all that and figure out which is the best one. To, to do first yeah when there's only one mat <laughs> there is only one mat yeah not enough hours in the day <laughs> and a, a topic that we were discussing in slack today which i think ties into this is it was me coming from the sales mindset of when do we switch so what is the point that we switch over from a beta user to a paying customer and how do you know that it's the right time to do that because the advantage of having someone as a beta user is really the learning it's the feedback that they're giving us on how to improve the product, whereas it's a different conversation to ask someone to to be a paying user. And I th- I like I th- I find that interesting. I think we'll learn from a sales perspective when when we're asking people to pay, but then it's not the same in terms of how how lenient or how flexible I think people are as a paying user compared to if they're in that beta mindset. 
So, so that's one question. And then there's a related question, which is thinking about what's the ideal volume of beta users. And we talked about that in our previous episode, but I think that that is a moving target and it changes as the product evolves. So interested to get your opinion on what that looks like at the moment. Yeah, I think the, these are these are good points. So more beta testers is good, right? More feedback is good up to a point where at the moment, each beta tester involves me getting on a Zoom call and uh, onboarding them, which is good. It's the best way to get feedback at this point, but that's also time consuming. So there's a trade-off there to how many I can onboard with and, and still have the time to be able to work on the issues that come out of having a beta tester. And that's just part of the the struggle of of um, being sort of a solo, or not a solo founder so much in this sense, but sort of solo developer and uh, um, product developer. Um, and then, so I think, at, you know, we need to balance that, but we also need to start thinking about, well, we can't be beta testing forever. Mm-hmm. At some point, we've got to start, you know, saying this software is doing a job for you and it's helping you out and you should be paying for it. We don't want to wait too long because I think if people get used to using it for free, we'll get two problems. First of all, we'll get feedback from the perspective of it being free. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be pretty happy with a piece of software if it doesn't cost you anything. But if we actually say, no, we want you to pay this much per month, we may get very different feedback Mm -hmm. and expectations from people. And then the other option is that just that, you know, we – we can't uh, let people use it for free too long and suddenly turn around and say, no, you've got to start paying. We need yep. to let them know that they are going to have to pay for it um, eventually how much, what sort of time frame. Uh, I think for me, it's, it's, you know, as a developer, it's pretty typical that we sort of undervalue what we've built and the, the benefit of the product. You know, we tend to look at the code and how many hours we put in and price based on that, and that's pretty common. Whereas from a sales point of view, you'd sort of look at what value is mm-hmm. it delivering and is it solving a problem. And I want to get to the point where people are using the software and wouldn't want to lose it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they'd be disappointed if it goes away, yeah. and so they'd much rather pay for it than lose it. But, we need, you know, I need to figure out where that is. Um, I think you're, Meryl, you're, you're keen to sort of start uh, getting more customers in, um, I think open the floodgates might have been the term you used, <laughs> which is a little daunting. But um, and also charging people sooner is that is that fair? Well, that's my general approach to business, but that's also my role in this project is sales and marketing. And my general right. approach, not having built software before, is to try and sell as early as possible because I think you get great feedback from the sales process, even though our sales process might be more of a an interaction with our website and an onboarding call potentially. We're, we're still figuring that out. And then also you alluded to this, which is having paying customers means a different kind of feedback. So part of it is about what we'll learn through paying customers and then the other is if my job is sales and marketing, it means increasing the number of paying users. So that's the, the mindset that I should be bringing to the conversations that we have about crossbeam is how can we grow faster? How can we have more paying users sooner? And and we need to balance that. So I'll, I'll come to the conversations with that, looking at things through that lens, but we need to balance that with giving a good experience and building the product. But I think it's good to that sometimes, well, often they're competing priorities between marketing and product. And so it's good to, to have that balance. All those conversations. Yeah. I mean, I think, having having someone pushing that angle is like, number one it's just good to have someone thinking about it because it it makes reminds me to keep focused on that like i can't just build 
the best product that nobody uses. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna be much of a success. So yeah, it's good to have someone that's sort of keeping their eye on, you know, when, when can we get more people in? You know, when can we start uh, expanding um, our coverage? So yeah, I think I think it's something we've got to figure out. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get uh, maybe another ten users over the next couple of weeks. That to me mm-hmm. feels like a sustainable sort of rate, um, depending on uh, what sort of feedback they mm-hmm. get too, because. We might get a beta tester that gets on and it works fine, does everything they need. And another beta tester might get it on and they've got a completely different workflow or a different setup or they're using some other tool. And out of that comes a lot more, not necessarily things we need to fix, but just a lot more sort of engagement with them and discussion. And we need to think through, do we prioritize what they need over what the other customers need? If we have 10 of those, it's probably going to be a lot of work and we won't get much done. And so that's where it's a little bit up in the air. We don't know what kind of feedback we're going to get. So it's a little bit hard to predict the few weeks after that and how that may impact things leading up into the launch. Right. And we, and we also need to remember that, you know, we're dealing with uh, some sort of sensitive areas of people's businesses too. You know, if this was a – if we were just launching – um, you know, a, a Slack plugin or I don't want, I shouldn't say just a Slack plugin. Those, <laughs> you know, you're dealing with people's communications there, but we're going to be pushing data into people's zero accounting systems. So we don't want to mess that up. We don't want to start sending in, you know, bad data or create more work for them or anything like that. Yep. So we need to be, we need to have a, a sort of a base level of reliability uh, that we can that we're comfortable with. I think before we get too many people onboarded. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go off on a little bit of a tangent, which was around the process we went through to create the logo, and I think it's an interesting story because I think we've applied startup methodology in terms of executing quickly and doing the minimum that we needed to to move on and, and focus on other things. So, do you want to quickly talk through? how well, you actually ran it so we needed a logo how, how much time did you spend on it and and how did that process work and how did you think about it so yeah yeah we needed a logo i had a um i had a placeholder image that i can't even remember where i got it from it was probably like a public domain site or something but uh out our partner, Nito, who the e-commerce platform, they they sent me an email with a list of marketing requirements. And one of those is like, you know, supply us a logo in these dimensions. And I immediately thought, right, we're going to need a logo. It's probably that point where we need something. And uh, so I started thinking, you know, what what, what do we do from here? Um, there's a couple of options. You know, in the past, I've tried using designers uh, on sites like Upwork or a couple of other sort of marketplaces. Uh, Fiverr is another one I haven't used, but I know people go to Fiverr and get work done there. But for me, the you know, at this point, I don't have a strong opinion or sense of what the brand of Crossbeam is or what image we should be putting forward. I just needed something that looked reasonable. And I remember there's like some logo generation websites. So I had a Google for one of those and came across, I think it's called uh, Looker. I'll, I'll check that and I'll get the URL. But it basically just, you put in some terms and uh, some color preferences and it uses some sort of AI or machine learning algorithm to generate lots of different options. Uh, you then sort of narrow those down and you can tweak them a bit. And you can then buy the the logo and a few other assets. And I think it was about $80 US and it took me about probably an hour or so to do. And it's not, you know, it's not as good as if we went out and hired a designer to do it professionally. But 
it's good enough and it means that I can move on and get the rest of those marketing assets done now to be sent over. And I'm not going to have to be, you know, waiting two weeks for to do revisions on a logo. And the other important thing is like we can always change it later. This this isn't the last logo that we're going to produce. We can it'll it might be good for a month, it might last us. I suspect we're actually gonna probably have it longer than we think. <laughs> but for now, it'll do the job and we can replace it when we've got an idea of you know what we want and we've got some budget to do something better and some time to think about something better. Yeah. And I think that that story is it's perfect. It, it captures what's essential right now which is building a good product that solves a problem and getting beta users and then paying users. And the logo just needed to be not bad. And it's actually, it's decent. I think it's decent. But we didn't need to go through a branding exercise. We don't have enough information to do that. And I think there's lots of little obstacles like that that founders can let get in the way of actually executing on what matters. And so, Matt, you spent an hour on that. It looks okay and we can move on. But it would have been very easy for some, I mean, you can do, you can spend a month on a branding process and mood boarding and brainstorming things and tweaking the font. And and as you said, you can rebrand later. And, and that's exactly what we did with Ninjas. We actually created a text font ourselves, paid for the, the font, and that was that was it. So same thing, took an hour to create the logo. And it, it was bad. It was actually, it was worse. The one we have now is decent. That, that was pretty bad. But we had it for about a year because it just wasn't the priority. But it, And it wasn't so, but it didn't stop us getting customers. And then we did a full brand refresh and we we're actually doing another one. We, we finished one recently. So it's always something you can improve on. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends. Like if, if I was a real estate agent or something like that, probably branding is probably far more important. But because we're software that people can install and, and try and see if it works, I think we can get away with having, you know, just a reasonable logo rather than a, a fully professional brand at this point. It probably depends on what industry you're in. I, I yeah. think about that with the brewery because if they have a beer can that looks terrible on the shelves, then probably no one's going to buy it. So in that case, branding actually matters and, and that's impacting the purchasing decision. But with software and with professional services, I think it matters less, particularly in the, the early stages. For sure, yeah. Now, was there anything else you wanted to chat about in terms of what you've been working on, what you've been learning, any differences in in the, this phase of Crossbeam compared to back in stock? Uh, nothing, nothing too much yet. I mean, there's. I'm sort of probably uh, thinking more about just how to keep moving fast. Mm-hmm. That's the the biggest difference. Is for instance, I want to move. Uh, we're currently hosted. Um, on render.com and I want to move to a different provider. Render's been good. It's They're, they're sort of like trying to compete against Heroku, which mm-hmm. is a really popular web host. Um, neither of them are sort of particularly important for what we, we're working with. So I just want to move to uh, something that's going to support some of the way I work a bit better. For instance, I like to open up a shell and be able to sort of access the console for the web app uh, directly. And that's really useful for me when I'm early on when I'm developing. Um, and that's a bit difficult with render. I want to move to a different provider so that I can sort of keep that velocity of development going. But it's going to take some time to move hosts. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of like prioritizing that now because I think it's going to let me move faster later on. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, I probably would have just kept pushing it down the list. Mm-hmm. So there's a few little things like that that um, I think are different that I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking more about strategic decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, getting the marketing stuff together sooner is 
again, yeah. that's because I know that once I send it off, it's not going to be live the next day. Mm-hmm. It's going to take uh, Nito a week or two to put it live on their site. So I need to get it sent now mm-hmm. so that we're ready in a couple of weeks when it does go on their, live on their site. Yeah. Now, I think uh, this week you're going to turn the tables on me and ask me a couple of questions. So yeah. I'll throw it over yeah. to you. Yeah, so I want to hear about um, you. You've been mentioning that you're working on sort of increasing capacity at Bean Ninjas. You you want to change some of the, the structure and, and they'll delegate some of the management tasks. So I want to hear, I mean, I, it sort of ties into, I guess, what I was just talking about. For me, it's like velocity of how much code can I and features can I ship. Yep. You want to increase, I guess, throughput for, for your business and how many clients can you onboard and support yep. with a given headcount. What's so? First of all, I mean, what's the blocker there? What what at the moment means you couldn't go and take on double the number of clients that you have now? Well, this is one of the downsides of having a service business compared to software. We, I think, with software, when it's built, it can scale very quickly in terms of the number of users that you can support with the platform that you have. Whereas when you have people providing a service and you double revenue, that it might not double the number of people that are required to deliver it, but you definitely need more people if there's more volume of work to handle. And so something I've been working on and part of my role with Tracy's team and, and their merge into Beanages is if we wanted to significantly increase revenue for that business, then we would need to increase capacity. And so that's been the theme. We, we like to have a theme each quarter. So for, for Q1 and Q2 of this year, the theme has been increasing capacity without increasing the work hours of the team. And so whenever we're running sprints or whenever we're talking about projects, it, it needs to feed into that goal. And the, the last part of that is important because you could just say, well, to increase capacity, we just need everyone to work harder and we want people working on Saturdays and look, you just got to put in some extra hours. But that's not, I don't think that's the right approach. Part of our core value or one of our core values is around freedom and allowing people to do great work but also have have balance and actually enjoy things outside of work. So that strategy does not, in terms of asking people to work extra hours, is not really in alignment with the kind of business we want to run. So then I, I looked at, well, where are the roadblocks? And to do that, I needed to spend time with everyone in the team. So when I first started, I did one-on-one calls with all of the core team members and really tried to map out how does the team work, who's responsible for what, where are the, the bottlenecks, and what should I tackle first. And so in thinking about that, I realised that Tracy has a lot on her plate as the, the general manager of Australia and that anything that doesn't fit neatly in a bucket ends up on her plate. So we've got one bottleneck there, particularly around if we're trying to do more business development, which is her role, we won't be able to do that and grow our revenue significantly if she's not free. So I wanted to to tackle that task, but there was no one to delegate her work to. And so so then I looked down the list, okay, well, I need to free up some other people in the team. So how are we going to do that? And really that's where I started is how can, so picking individual people and then thinking about what can I get off their plate? What can we delay? So what's not important that we can either not do it all and get rid of or just push back later in the year? Or do we need to hire some more junior staff members to handle some different elements here? And so part of that was, I'll give you an example. I worked with Kerry, who's the bookkeeping manager, 
and looked at some bookkeeping work papers to see, well, could we save an hour or could we save half an hour on every single one of these that we do by by optimizing a few things? And so that's a quick win that might save 10 hours a month. So then I can say, all right, well, we've got 10 hours a month back. Now can can this new project or task come onto your plate? So I, I think it's hard to it's a, it's a hard to convince someone to take on extra work if they're already feeling like they're at capacity. So it's really well, what can I do to create space first? And the other way to create space was hiring some additional team members. And so we've just had two new team members join. But again, there's work in recruiting, there's work in onboarding, there's work in training. And so we needed to create the space to do that too. So you, it's been a challenge thinking through what's the right order to do that and also not overwhelming team members with change. So there's probably lots of other stories and projects I can talk about within that, but but that's probably a good start. Are there are there things that when you say there's things that we, we're going to delay or not do, are there, are there things that you just decide that these aren't worth doing or is it basically everything needs to get done? It's just a matter of you know, prioritizing it. So something like client work that needs to be done and there's deadlines like bass lodgements around that. So that's not something that could be moved. And then with internal accounting, there's some things like chasing up debtors. So people that owe you money, that needs to be done right now because cash flow is important. But maybe organizing the accounts in this particular way and doing our internal end of month close it might not be how I want it, but we could push that back six months and the business is going to be okay. So it's not a top priority. Or uh, I wanted to do a project around performance management and looking at how we do career plans for everyone. And that's important, managing the team. But again, we've got other priorities, so that gets pushed back. So part of that is projects that get pushed back. But I think you're probably getting more at, well, what are, what are the internal operations? Is there anything there that we can do differently? As an example, I, I like fixed price direct debit billing because then you don't have to spend time sending invoices and chasing invoices and, and the admin there. So we go through an, we went through an exercise to figure out does it make sense to actually switch everyone over to fixed fee billing to reduce that admin time, and that's that's somewhere where we it's not delaying it six months, but it's trying to save time on on something in the short term. So that's that's fixed fixed bill like billing your clients a fixed amount every month so you don't you don't have to figure out what you need to bill them each month is that right yeah and and so the beanages australia team does that for for a lot of their clients but not every single client and and i think that's been because sometimes the workload could vary month to month or quarter to quarter do clients have a preference like do they prefer the fixed bill it seems to me that they would prefer fixed billing if they think it's reasonable but i might be wrong well that's what i thought too but we have had pushback occasionally from clients that prefer to pay for the work that they know has happened, even though I think it makes it harder to budget if you don't know exactly what the fee is going to be. But, yeah, I, I made the same assumption as you, but it seems like not in every case. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's, yeah, that surprised me. I would have thought, me personally, I prefer a fixed amount and I know what's coming up um, and sort of reducing that, uh, optimising that away as much as possible I think is really helpful. Like even things like um, some SaaS subscriptions that I pay for, I'll switch those to annual billing if I can, just because then I don't have to enter a receipt every yes. month. And I just like it might only save me ten, you know, minutes a month, or not even that. But to me, 
um, it's not useful time. And if I'm going to be paying the same amount, I'll just switch it to annual and, and uh, just enter a receipt once a year. Yeah, I'm the same as you. I might add one more story there, thinking about how to free up the founder, which was Tracy, and how to avoid that situation where, where everything that's not narrowly defined, how do you stop that falling into the lap of the founder, that, that they have to deal with all these ad hoc random things that come up? And the way we approached that was instead of, and I think this is a common organizational structure that all team members report to the founder until the business grows to, you know, 10, 15 people, and then you start to have management layers. And then the managers are responsible for a department. So that's something else that we've been implementing and working towards that it's pretty clear that most tasks within the business fit within three buckets. There's the bookkeeping team, there's the tax team, and then there's internal operations which is things like finance, HR, IT. And so we we have identified someone within the business that can grow into a manager role for each of those departments and they're, they're either in that role or working towards that at the moment. And then it became very clear if an ad hoc task comes in that kind of sits in the internal finance bucket, well, then that goes to that person. Or is it related to bookkeeping? Okay, well, even though it's not a specific client question, it might be, moving to help their software related to the bookkeeping team, then that fits within that department and is the responsibility of the manager. And I think that's been really helpful too and a mindset that that founders can, is helpful in creating, instead of delegating tasks, delegating an area of responsibility and then that net is cast a lot wider in terms of what that manager is responsible for and giving them some autonomy to make decisions within their area. I've, I mean, I found it really hard to be able to delegate uh, areas like that early on. You know, everything, anything I delegated, I had to write out a specific how-to document and record a screencast, and I had very specific ways of doing it because I'd always done it, so I thought it had to be done that way. Was it? Did you did you have the same experience, or were you quite? Uh, did you find it quite easy to delegate areas of responsibility? Probably not so much now, but early on. Um, was it something that was difficult to just delegate that stuff and trust that it was going to be done properly? Definitely. I found it hard too. And similar to what you described, I used to write out detailed procedures. This was before the days of Loom. So it was actually writing it out and screenshots and and then doing detailed reviews. So handing it over, but then checking to make sure that it was done. And I was handing over tasks, not areas of responsibility, but I was also hiring people for a task. So they were, I'd say they were more junior team members than someone that you would have in a manager role. So it actually took years to, to evolve from that. And now I prefer to hand over an area of responsibility and then say to that person, it's your job to create all the procedures. It's your job to hire the right people for that team. Um, but that's a different kind of person that you're hiring that can, can take on that level of responsibility. Right. So you've got to, if you're going to do that, if you're going to delegate an area, you need to make sure you're hiring a person that can take on that area and be responsible for it. Yes. Or have the ability to grow into it. I also sure. like promoting from within. So it might be someone that's had strong technical capability, but they've got good people skills. Maybe they've got some project management skills and they're interested in learning how to manage people. Then I think that's a nice transition. I actually think that works better than hiring a new manager in. I like to try and promote from within, but, but you've got to have the right talent to, in order to find someone that you can promote internally. 
Right. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to have people that have got the ability to grow into mm-hmm. that. The um, you know the the hunger for it and the interest. Yeah, definitely. And has there any ever been um, you know anything where you've delegated it and it's gone wrong and you've been unhappy with uh, you know you didn't you didn't say do it this way but the way someone handled it didn't work out well or you didn't agree with it. Um, it would have happened for sure, and I'm struggling to think of a specific example of that. Um, well, actually, I can go I'm back. I'm just wondering, like, I, yeah, like how do you handle that if, you know, is it because, you, you, you know, if you haven't said do it this way, how do you handle when something goes wrong and, you know, avoid having that happen again in the future? So I think it's important to allow mistakes to happen, and, and I actually have gone to the extreme of not diving into help when we had a transition from one bookkeeper to another and we ended up losing a client where I where I didn't des- I decided not to dive in and, and help. Uh, this is going back many many years, but I thought it was important. There was a lot we could learn. So even though it, it hurts, if you lose a client, I thought that the learning experience and seeing the consequences of what we hadn't done well was actually really important. So in, in this situation where you've got a team member that's not done something the way you would do it and it hasn't gone well, I think that's a good learning exercise as long as the learning actually happens. And so that's where I think doing a post-mortem or a debrief is important and having that team member think through, well, what was the situation, what went well, what didn't, what could be done differently, and then not stopping there, then it needs to be turned into action items. So so what would be done differently? Well, does that mean we need to schedule something? Does that mean a procedure needs to change? Does that mean we need to email clients? Because I feel like there's not that much point in doing the postmortem if you're not going to take action. So, what what needs to change? Yeah, I, th- I think that yeah, th- this is something that I think about a lot. Um, it was a similar sort of uh, less so much with people, but uh, when I think about you know servers and systems and databases, and if we have downtime, we need to do the same sort of mm-hmm. thing. You know, uh, why did it go down? What can we do- what can we change mm-hmm. and make sure it doesn't happen again? And it's that incremental improvement that I think adds up over time, mm-hmm. and then you can build a really robust and stable platform, mm-hmm. um, or I guess a, a robust and stable team. Yeah. And- and I think it's often system related. So that's the first place that I go is, was there a breakdown? So was our system not followed or was there actually a, system, a breakdown in the system? Because if there was, then fixing the, the one, one-off error is not, the, the bigger question is where was the system breakdown and how do we fix that? Which I think that's what you just mentioned as well from a, a software yeah, perspective. For sure. Well, I think we're we're pretty much at time for this week and I enjoyed some of those questions you asked me I haven't thought about some of those things for a few years particularly around the the delegation side of things so so that was interesting were there any parting comments that you wanted to share or thoughts before we wrap up until next fortnight no I don't think so um I'm hoping that you know we'll be able to talk a bit more about the launch um uh, of Crossbeam uh, in a couple of weeks and how that's progressing or how it's not progressing depending <laughs> on how the beta process goes. So it should be interesting, yeah, to see where we're at in a couple of weeks. I think it'll be that we'll either have uh, have moved forward a lot or we've got some problems <laughs> to sit down and talk through. <laughs> awesome. Well, good chatting with you, Matt. See you later. See you, Meryl. Thanks. Bye.